Every Monday morning, Susan processes the Connect cards, and as you know, on the Connect cards, uh, people share information, and uh, often they, they will share uh, prayer requests, and that so every Monday morning when I, when I get those, I look at the prayer requests and pray for those folks. But I was really um, uh, taken aback, I think, by uh, the number of requests I got, I got emailed to me last Monday. Uh, uh, to me, it signified that there's a lot of need in our congregation, a lot of people going through stuff. And, you know, often we don't, we don't even know it. You know, sometimes we go through things that are so near and dear to our heart that we don't even share it with other people, you know. And so uh, we come to church and we sing, and I'm glad that we do, and we worship, and I'm glad that we do, and you listen to a, a, a little sermon, uh, and then we go home. So this morning I, I thought I'd just start before I begin to preach, and I just want to just pray for you today. And I, w- I want to pray for those that are uh, going through a difficult time whether it's spiritual, emotional, in terms of relationship, money, physical, I, I don't know. But uh, let's take a moment, just bow your head with me, and just let me pray for you before we, we begin. Father, we're thankful today that we know, that we know, that we know, that you really do love us. And your love is of such deep magnitude that you care about the things that we're going through, and you care so deeply that you are involved in our lives and involved in the situations that trouble us. So in this moment, I just lift up to you the names of individuals today that are unknown to me but known to you, that are going through a difficult time, whatever that thing might be that keeps them awake at night, or whatever that thing is that makes them feel like they're ready to give up, I I just ask, Father, that you would encourage, that you would help, that you would direct, that you would give victory today to anyone that's here this morning that's struggling or going through a difficult time. May they have the knowledge, the assurance that you are on the job on their behalf. And so we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you here recognize the name of Henry Nouwen. Anybody's just maybe a couple of you? So Henry Nouwen uh, was a Catholic priest, uh, a distinguished writer. He published a lot of books, uh, a deep thinker, uh, a a professor. And uh, in, um, I think it was 1983, Henry Nouwen was going to an appointment in the village of Trosley, France. And he walked into the, into the building, and there was the office door of somebody that he was going to meet, and he started to knock on the door, and he looked up, and there, uh, taped to the door, was a 
poster of a picture, and it's that picture right there that you're going to see on the screen in just a moment. It's a picture that was painted by Rembrandt. And it was painted two years before he died, and so that means the picture was painted about 1697, something like that. If you take a look at it, you might, you might even recognize that it's, a, it's uh, Rembrandt's rendition of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son when he returns, and that story is found in uh, Luke chapter 15. Henry was really, really taken with that, with that painting. It really caught his attention. The original by Rembrandt uh, is in the Hermitage Museum uh, somewhere in Russia. And about three years after Henry saw this poster, this that you're looking at up there on the screen, he was able to, to go to Russia and and take a look at it. And so he went to the Hermitage Museum, and he, he stood in front of that picture right there. Now, you need to remember that uh, many of those paintings by the masters were really large. And I, I don't have the dimensions memorized, but I mean six or seven foot tall and, you know, big, big painting. And he stood there for a couple of hours, and he had he had a friend. He had made a connection with somebody there at the museum. And after two hours, his friend came up and said, man, you've been standing here for two, hour, two hours staring at this thing. Why don't you take a break? And so he talked Henry into taking a break. And so they went and sat down and got coffee or something. And after that break, Henry said, I have to go back. So Henry went back for another hour stood and stared at that, at that painting. Finally, it was time for the museum to close, and the security guard came up and said, excuse me, excuse me, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to leave. You got, it's time, we're going to shut the lights out, and so, so he left. The very next morning, Henry came back, and yes, he stood in front of this painting, and uh, somebody recognized him and said, we got to get this guy a chair. He might be here for a while. And so they got a chair and set it right in front of the painting there at the Hermitage. And for four more hours, Henry sat there and stared at this masterpiece by Rembrandt. Now, as you look at this, I don't know who you identify with or if you have it all figured out, but naturally we recognize that the person there in the bottom left corner uh, is the prodigal son who has returned. He's kneeling before his, his father, and his, his father has his hands on his shoulders. In the upper right corner, uh, dressed there is a bit of a dandy, and his arms folded kind of elevated. He's looking down on the scene. You recognize that's the elder brother. And then scholars say that uh, there in the middle, in the very back, uh, is perhaps the mother looking on at the scene. 
And then the guy in the middle to the right with the black hat on, uh, some suggest that he's like the financial advisor because this is a really wealthy family and there's a lot of money involved, you know. Art scholars have figured out something I think that's very, very interesting, at least to me, and engaging. And they say that when they study this painting and they look at, at uh, the head of the son who is kneeling before the father, they say that's pretty much a dead ringer for Rembrandt when he was a young man that age. It's a self-portrait of Rembrandt. And then they said that when Rembrandt became uh, older and became the age of the elder brother there in the upper right corner, it looks just like him. He painted a picture of himself as an older person. Now remember, he painted this two years before he died, and so he was an old man when he painted this. And scholars say it doesn't stop there that when you look at the, at the face of the father, the aged father, that is very much a self-portrait of Rembrandt at that age. And so when you look at this masterpiece, you're seeing, you're seeing self-portraits of Rembrandt at different ages and different stages in his life. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. And Henry Nowen thought it was so fascinating that he stood there for seven hours altogether studying this picture, and he was so moved by it that he actually wrote a book on it, uh, something called uh, The Homecoming, something like that. And I've read that book, and a couple of the, of the things that I'm going to share with you are not my insights, but they're from Henry Nowen's book, and if I share one of those insights, I'll from now on, I'll, I'll let you know it's not my thinking, but it's, but it's his thinking. So let's begin, and we're going to do uh, three sermons on this little series. We're going to look at, at the son, we're going to look at the father, and then we're going to look at the elder brother in the weeks that lie ahead. So let's begin today by looking at Luke chapter 15, and I want to read verses 11 to 15. Luke 15, 11 to to 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Now, in our culture today, when we just read those verses, we're like, that's a bad, that's a bad son. <laughs> you know, we're just like, that's pretty rude of that kid to do that to his dad, and, and we're, we're like, oh, where was his manners? He shouldn't have said that. Um, and so the dad divides everything and, and gives him his inheritance. But what we may not know and what we might miss 
is that 2,000 years ago, this was an absolutely unheard of statement by a son to the father. And I say that because the law was very clear, hard and fast, that in order for a father, a father's estate, to be distributed to his kids, he had to actually die. Imagine that. And so, really, when you read into into this culture of 2,000 years ago, what is clearly happening is that the younger son is looking at his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. I I wish you would just drop over dead because I want what you have and what's coming to me, and I want it now. Now, that puts a little bit different spin on it, at least it does for me, when I realize the severity of what this son is saying to his dad. I just wish you were dead. I want, I want what's coming to me now. And so the father graciously gives it to him. Now, again, today, um, it's not really uncommon for a child to show disrespect to the father. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens and we're like, oh, again, we're, oh man, that kid's so rude and somebody should have taught him some manners. But back in this culture, in this culture of, in the days of Jesus, if, if you had a child that disrespected a parent like this, I wish you were dead. I mean, that was an offense of the highest order. And in fact, the father had the right to grab his son, haul him out into the field, and stone him. As a a matter of fact, in these little communities of Bible times, the community was very, very tight. And if this had gotten out to the community, the community would realize that this would reflect badly on the community. It's going to make them, the whole town look bad. It would not have been at all unheard of for the town to gather together, go to the house with the dad leading the way, and haul that kid out into the field and stone him. I'm, I'm saying this is a really, really big deal. And then the text says that then the son, after he got the goods, headed off to a distant country. And so this kid has rebelled against his dad. He's rebelled against the family. He's rebelled against the community. He's rebelled uh, against his religion. And so his words speak really loudly, at least they do to me. And what he's saying is, I will do what I want. I don't care what you think. I will call the shots. I am the center of my universe. And if you don't like it, too bad. And so here he goes off to this distant country and lives this wild, rowdy life. He he takes his inheritance and he just burns right through it. I mean, it it is all gone. Everything is gone. And then there comes this huge 
famine and there's no money and, no, and, and, he's, and he's in need. And I'm kind of moving ahead in the story just a tiny bit. But he doesn't know what to do, so he gets a job where he has to deal with the pigs. Now again, let's remind ourselves he's a Jewish person in the first century. And maybe you already know that for Jewish people in the first, in the first century and even today, you know, they don't eat pork, we say. The Jews don't eat pork. But in that first century, you, you couldn't even touch a pig. And one of the reasons is that uh, pigs were associated with pagan worship. The Canaanite religion kind of elevated pigs. And so, you know, we're, we're going to keep our, our distance from the pagan religions of the day. And that's one of the reasons why Jewish folk, nothing to do with pigs. But now, here is this son who has really slapped his dad in the face, wished he was dead, took all of his money, burned through everything, and then he goes, he goes and associates with the pigs and takes a job trying to feed the pigs. It's a shocking story, especially in the first century. If we had been there the first time Jesus ever told this story to the original audience, I'm sure you would hear loud gasps out loud. Just like, what? No. No. It's dramatic. I thought about the story, and it occurs to me that this really is the classic story of rebellion that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and it continues to this day. I think I've already mentioned something about this, that in the creation story of mankind, how in Genesis 2-7, God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Man became a, a, a living being, some translations say. And the Hebrew word there is nephesh. And it really means a man became a living appetite. So that when God created man and woman, they were created to have a craving to be with God. There's this, they're hardwired to be with God. But we all know the story that Adam rebelled against God. And so God is the original hurt father. And Adam is the original prodigal son that rebelled. And we read that story and we see that they went to their own far off country. <laughs> they left the Garden of Eden and went out from the, from the presence of God. So here is this younger brother, and he rebels, and he goes out, and he tries to fill the hole in his heart for things out there in, in, in this foreign country. He is hardwired to have this relationship with his dad, but now he's got this hole in his heart because of rebellion, and so he, he chases after all of these things. And he burns through all of this money to try to fill that deep longing in his heart. But he, he discovered that even though he burnt through all that money and, and did all of these things to make himself feel better, feel better, nothing made him feel any better. He still had this hole in, in, in his heart. And 
I'm going to guess that while he was trying to fill this hole in his heart, he was saying to himself, well, at least I'm free. I don't have to listen to my dad anymore. Don't have to listen to the, my religion anymore or the community. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm free. But the truth of the matter is, the longer he kept going, the further in trouble he got. And the truth of the matter was, he was not free at all. Now, I don't know if you see yourself as the prodigal or not, but I'm hoping that you do. Because we are all prodigals. We're all prodigal sons or prodigal daughters because we've all gone our own way and we've all looked at God and we've all said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, whatever it is that God may have asked, asked you to do, God may have said, I want you to move there, and maybe you said no. God said, I want you to become this when you grow up, and we said no. Or God said, I want you to go talk to that person, or I, I want you to ask somebody to forgive you, and I want you to restore that, work on restoring that broken relationship, and maybe we, we said no. Honestly, we, we have all been there. We've all rebelled against God. At some point in our lives, we've all thought we knew better than God. I mean, that's just the honest, the, the honest truth. We went our own way. We went to our own distant country and did our own thing. And maybe we even had this mistaken idea that we were free and we'll just do whatever we want and everything's going to be fine but maybe you discovered the more you went down that road, the more in trouble you got. Hmm. Enslaved. The truth is, you and I, we're not free to call the shots without the consequences. Only God can fill the deep longing of your heart and my heart. And we see that very clearly, I think. In Luke chapter 15. Now let me read verses 16 through the middle of verse 20. So we look at the rest of the story for this morning at least. So it says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So do you ha I hope you got the picture now. So here is this prodigal son... He is down and out. He has absolutely lost everything. He's laying in the pig pen. In fact, he wants to eat the pig food, but there's not even any pig food for him to eat. He is broken. He is in despair. But then all of a sudden, something happens, and there's a note of hope. And the note of hope 
is found in some of the sweetest words you'll ever see in Scripture. And it's these words right here. When he came to his senses. Mm. Now those are some mighty fine words. When he came to his senses. And he came to his senses because the man hit rock bottom. (laughs) Sold everything. So here's this famine that's come and there's no food to eat and he can't even take pig food. No pig food for him. There There are no other options. And then he remembers. Ah, there is my dad. And the light goes on and he hatches this little plan. He says, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to tell my dad I've sinned against him. And, and I'm going to ask him to make me one of, one of your hired servants. And when you look at the picture there of the son kneeling in the bottom left corner, uh, you can see he's in pretty rough shape. It's Rembrandt's interpretation, of course. But, I mean... The clothes that he has on is, is, is shabby. His hair is cut short, and maybe that's because of bugs or something that he had to deal with. I don't, I don't know. His sandals are all just kind of uh, worn out. I mean, he looks like a mess there in that picture. But now there's something here, and I don't know if you can see it. I'm going to go up here and point it out. Right here, I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's, that's a dagger that presumably his dad has given him. And Henry Nowen raises a really good question. He said, why is it in Rembrandt's painting that the prodigal son still has a dagger? I mean, think about it. He's burned through the inheritance. He doesn't have anything left. Nothing remains. He's down as far as you can go. He can't even find any pig food to eat, for crying out loud. He's got this, he's got this dagger right here that's got to be worth some money. Henry Nowen says, why did Rembrandt paint it like that? And Nowen says in the book that The answer to that question is that Rembrandt is making a theological statement by painting painting the prodigal with this dagger still attached around his waist. And the theological statement that Rembrandt is making about this prodigal son is that the son still has that dagger He wouldn't let it go because it was a reminder of whose he was. It was a reminder of his his father. And as long as he had the dagger, there was something about still a connection to his father. And again, Rembrandt's interpretation, that's not in Scripture. But I thought about that and I thought, you know what? That makes sense to me because Scripture does teach us that we are all made in the image of God and that no matter how far away we get from God, 
no matter how lost we are in our rebellion, no matter how broken we are, no, no matter how we've badly we've messed up our life, there's still something inside of us that wants to come back to God. This image of God, this we're created in his image, and I don't know exactly what all that means, I'm going to be honest, but it's this, this magnetic pull on the inside. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that thing that cries out to be in a relationship with God, even when we don't even know it's there. This created there in the image of God. That voice, that pull, that attraction in you that always reminds you, even when you're lost and rebellious, that there is God. This idea to seek God. And then there's this idea that in the text, the prodigal hatches this plan and he says, I'm going to go back and ask my father to forgive me. And he doesn't say, and ask him to restore me as his son. But the, the plan that he comes up with is, I'm going to go back and ask my father to forgive me and make me one of his hired servants. That's an interesting little note here in the text. And I've tried to figure out why, why is that, and uh, it, I guess it makes sense to me. He wants his dad to forgive him, but he knows he's not really worthy to come back as a son because he looked at his dad and said, I wish you were dead, took his inheritance, blew it all. Really, I think what he's saying is, Will you for, I, 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 hope, I hope my dad forgives me, but just doesn't kill me when I come back because that's, that's what I deserve. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore because I have really, really messed things up. But the story, and I'm pushing ahead, I have to just a little bit into next week. The father receives him like this with open arms because he is a God. He represents the God who never gives up. The God who will love and keep on loving, even in your brokenness, even in your rebellion, and even in, in my rebellion. God loves you and me. There's a, a couple of lines from that great um, singing group called the Eagles. Yeah, Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for oh so long. Oh, you're a hard one, and I know you got your reasons. I don't know if you resonate with that or not, but 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 I do. Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? 
I don't know if you resonate with that or not, but I think you do. And maybe, maybe you have come back to God the Father, and you're in a great relationship with Him. But maybe today you're still in rebellion against God. But you're here today because there's something on the inside that calls, is calling you back to God. And you recognize God is not giving up on you. And I'm here to tell you today the good news that regardless of what you've done, God still loves you. And he wants you to come back to him and have a relationship with him. He is the only one that can fill the hole in your heart. He's the only thing that can meet the need in your heart. Drugs won't do it. A new job won't do it. Sex won't do it. Money won't do it. A brand new car might help, but it won't do it. Only God can meet the deep longing of your heart and of my heart. Well, I want to close by just praying for you today because I, I have a sense that maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here today that's like, man, Randy, you're talking about me. And if that's the case, I'm going to give you a, just an opportunity to pray a little prayer that might help you get back on the right path because if there's one thing I know, I know that God loves you regardless of what you've done. And that's the best news you will ever hear. Why don't you stand with me and I'm, I'm just going to pray. With your head bowed and eyes closed. If you want to pray a, a little prayer and ask God to help you, you might just there where you're standing pray something like this. Dear God, I know I'm a rebel. I know I've done things on my own that have not pleased you. And I want you to know I'm really sorry for those things. I want you to come into my life today and help me begin to work things out. Put my life back together. Walk with me today and tomorrow and in the days ahead. Father, I really hope that somebody here has prayed that little prayer this morning. We recognize that those aren't magic words, but we do recognize that that's the start of a renewed relationship with you. And I ask, Father, that if there's anybody here today that has prayed that little prayer, has prayed those words or something similar to that, that you would begin to walk with them. Let them know that you've heard their prayer today. And may this be the first day of a renewed walk with you.
Father, I'm glad that in my rebellion, you heard my heart's cry, and you've walked with me throughout these years. May it be so for every person here today. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.